This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing the best of my Times radio show. It's Politics at the Boring Bits, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, regular listeners to the radio show will remember that last year we counted down every leader of the opposition who didn't make it to number 10 with Nigel Fletcher. Well, as a result of that, he's turned it into a book. Somebody's written the forward for it, but it's not for me to say. Anyway, uh, Nigel Fletcher is back talking about his book on all the people who didn't quite make it to being Prime Minister. That's our big thing coming up in a moment. Uh, We've got uh, James Marriott and Indianite talking all sorts of nonsense as well. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learn that Rupert Murdoch is stepping back as our big, big boss to be replaced by his son, Lachlan, which is excellent news all round and not something to make jokes about. Good morning, boss. Uh, we learn from Gillian Hardhat Keegan that the kids just love that their proper schools are falling down. I've been to a number of these schools and seen uh, children and met uh, children in the porter cabins. And uh, in fact, at the first school I went to, the children were all petitioning me uh, to stay in the porter cabin because they actually preferred it to the classrooms. We learn that Liz Truss is back. I'm having a rather more relaxing September than I did last year. Yeah, aren't we all, Liz? Aren't we all? We learned that Boris Johnson has broken the rules over taking a column at the Daily Mail without getting permission. I know, totally out of character. I believe that uh, what we were doing was within the rules. We learned that Labour's party conference slogan is give Britain its future back, although much better was Times Radio listener James Thomas, who suggested, are we nearly Blair yet? We also learned that, shockingly, that massive Remainer and former second referendum cheerleader, Keir Starmer, quite likes the EU. We don't want to diverge. We don't want to lower standards. Prompting Tory Minister Mark Spencer to go all out on him on GB News. Look, we don't really know what he's saying. He's flip-flopping about because he doesn't seem to have a clear policy and he seems to make it up on the hoof on, on occasion. So uh, I, I think, uh, clearly, uh, it's very difficult to define what he does stand for. I mean, it certainly takes some gumption to decide that this week of all weeks is the time to mount a campaign accusing your opponent of being a flip-flopping, indecisive policy Mr Wibbly Wobbly. The proposal that we should force you to have seven different bins in your home. I've scrapped it. And that is what we learned this week. Now it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott. India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. Ah, we say hello to India Knight. Hello, India Knight. Hi, good morning. How are you, India? Are you better? I'm very well. That um, that Yvonne Fair song, It Should Have Been Me, is one of my favourite songs of all time. Oh, good. Yeah, nice. so good. Nice. And you've, you've, you've kicked the Covid. I've kicked the COVID. Still tiny bit croaky, but completely fine otherwise. You do sound much better, which is nice. Just, you know, keeping regular listeners updated on the... Thank you very much. ...on the ailments of staff. James, how are you? I'm well, yeah, thank you. You're fighting fit? Yeah, ready I'm to go. I'm glad to see you've got most of the buttons done up on your shirt. Yes, I decided to appear uh, in a state of full dress today in the newspaper, which is not always uh, my, my habit recently. Yes. What were you doing in the paper earlier in the week? Uh, I was 
sent to Paris to dress up as Serge Gansborg uh, for a photo shoot on Monday, and this involved the very nice but very forceful French photographer unbuttoning most of the <laughs> buttons on my shirt and then taking pictures of me because it made me look apparently louche, which I'm not sure it really did. Just maybe, I think it looks like he frightened in those pictures. You can see the fear in my eyes. Yeah, I'm not sure if you look like a louche French... I'm not sure what could transform me into a louche French no, person. Um, you... She also made me smoke three cigarettes at once and I felt like I was going to faint. <laughs> <laughs> so let me... Uh... one of the pictures. Here we are. This is the picture. Yeah, it's it, 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 well. I mean, you're doing your best to sort of pout, but your your state of undress does look more like you've been the victim of an assault. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, sadly, very um, true. Uh, I, I, well, for the benefit of people who haven't seen it, I'll tweet the link to it now. You please feel free. To... <laughs> yeah, we are discussing this now. There we are. So you could go have a look at that. Everyone right, immediately will tune out when they when they realise no one's going to tune in to like. listen to There's lots that. of buttons under. And what's really helpful is that they've put uh, next to you a, photo, a picture of Serge Gainsbourg with Jane Birkin uh, where he's wearing a, a shirt and a jumper and not in a state of undress. So it looks even more ridiculous. But anyway, there we are. <laughs> uh, let's move on and talk about what is on the front of the Times today. Rishi Sunak is drawing up plans for a radical reform of A-levels with a new style of British baccalaureate under which children would study more subjects after the age of 16. Uh, he's, it's all part of what he thinks you should do English and maths compulsory up until the age of 18. Uh, and it, you would, you'd have a sort of a broader um, uh, experience uh, until later in life. Uh, what do you think of this, India? Uh, it seems to me that every government tries this. Everybody agrees it's a good idea. I seem to remember, who was it, Cameron? Ruth Kelly. Ruth Kelly committing herself to it about, whatever it was, nearly 20 years ago, and she just couldn't get it through. The problem is people really, really believe that A-levels are good. People understand A-levels, people really like them. And so I think, you know, I think it's likely to meet, as it always has done in the past, um, with governments of both sides it's going i think it'll meet too much resistance but i'm generally i fine yeah absolutely then you wouldn't have people like me who wander through life not being able to count yes james what do you think yeah i mean it's when you realize you've really become a grown-up is that you start thinking yes everybody should study maths to the age of 18 which obviously i'd have been utterly despairing about when i was when i was 18 and i would not have uh my entire career would have stalled there because i was really terrible at maths again probably an indictment on our society that you know um such unqualified people are allowed to write newspaper columns. Uh, yes, it's clearly a good idea. I, the idea of studying compulsory English to 18 uh, is also good. I hope they'll be studying lots of poetry. Obviously highly useful for going through life, as I've discovered. Uh, but that seems to be less the focus of people's debate on this issue. Although my one of my sort of takeaways from it is it, if were this to happen, and you can argue about whether or not, but given you've got to stay in some sort of educational training until 18 now anyway, uh, it would seem to make sense that you were as qualified in English and math as you possibly could be. It just renders GCSEs to be even more pointless. Yeah. And, uh, and my daughter's school, because part of the argument for this is, you know, you end up narrowing at 15, you end up take, making decisions about subjects you're going to do at A-level, and that's too young to choose. Uh, my daughter's school teaches is doing the GCSEs still over three years. So she's just started year nine. So at the end of year eight, at the age of 13, she was choosing her GCSEs. So if the argument is we should be, you know, not narrowing, Let's do something about the pointlessness of of, of GCSEs. That's a re that's a really good point. I mean, I I can see an argument for some for some choice, but yeah, to be in year eight and suddenly deciding that you might never ever learn, you know, French again or something, yeah. is just right. a biz and something you might easily regret by the time you're eighteen. Yeah, it's a very weird think, way to do it. I think it's also a question, um, not GCSEs, um, A levels, or baccalaureates. It's a question of what qualifications are actually designed for so vocational qualifications are designed specifically to get people into jobs a levels or the baccalaureate or the international baccalaureate is designed to get you into university and and you can't fluff the difference you can't say oh this new thing can be vocational as well yeah. um so that i think needs looking at too because otherwise you're going to get a whole kind of cohort of people who are sort of no longer really properly catered for What's, what A-levels did you do, James? Uh, I have the fluffiest A-level record ever. Uh, English literature. Lovely. Uh, ancient history. Yeah. And oh. French. Of course. I mean, we, we could have guessed. We could yeah, have guessed. Yeah, from my Serge Gansborg photo shoot I started what? preparing early. <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, I, I should have realised it probably wasn't mechanics. <laughs> uh, what, what did you do, India? 
French, English, and Italian. Oh, very cultured, very civilized. A bit more useful than that. So I did English literature, history, and philosophy. Ooh, he's worse than me, in fact. Uh, sort of fluffy, look at you. Yeah. And I did French for a year, for a year, and I just couldn't get on with it, so I dropped it. And now it annoys me because it's the one thing that is more useful. Yeah, someone should really say, look, it's really boring when you're 17 years old, but in 10 years' time, you're going to be in France trying to order a baguette, and you'll feel so cool if you can do Having it. Having a shirt in the unbuttoned by an aggressive. Yeah, exactly. 10 years' time, you're going to be in the streets of Paris <laughs> being laughed at by French pedestrians as a woman aggressively unbuttons your shirt and tells you to look like Serge Gansborg. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the main the main takeaway from this is the number of people. I've just looked up actually. Yeah, Ruth Kelly was talking about, um, uh, or there was t- there was talk of a baccalaureate exam in two thousand and five, uh, and it's been talked about by almost everyone since. And this is a, a Rishi Sunak. Uh, you know, it's an idea he floated during his leadership campaign last year. It was put on hold. Now it's come back. If it does happen, it wouldn't be until after the election. Uh, and I mean, even you know Michael Gove and all the effort he put into overhauling GCSEs been slightly overtaken by you know technology and and all of that so yeah could possibly be an interesting idea doesn't feel like it's one that's going to happen no. anytime soon uh right let's move on then james talk about your column this week and your who have you been attacking this week uh darren grimes is my my target this week uh and why well first of all explain who darren grimes is so i don't know i feel a bit i feel a bit mean now i shouldn't really start picking on him so much but uh he is a in my view, slightly boneheaded uh, commentator on politics. I should stop being rude about him. I know. And well, the first adjective you were looking for was boneheaded. Well, what's a, what's a better word for boneheaded? Like a more polite. What's a more polite word? Uh, Maybe not always the best informed commentator on yeah, politics. Right. And uh, my column was bemoaning the fact that uh, instead of experts and people from universities telling us about how politics and science and society works, we're now subjected to people who are less well-informed, such as the uh, aforementioned commentator. And uh, this was coming out of reflecting on Russell Brand's weird time when he was briefly adopted in the kind of 2010s as a kind of intellectual figure. He wrote a book called Revolution. Ed Miliband had to go and talk to him in his kitchen about why democracy was actually a good idea. He was on Newsnight and... I was saying he should never really have been accepted as an authority on anything much. And it's a kind of slightly depressing trend that lots of comedians are now kind of reinventing themselves as public intellectuals who are worth listening to. Well, yeah, you're right. So it's not just uh, Darren Grimes who uh, you uh, singled out. uh, who's a person on GB News. Down in the most squalid depths of the intellectual food chain, the appeal of crass pundits such as the GB News regulars Sophie Cochran and Darren Grimes, stems precisely from their ignorance. Uh, but not just them. Uh, the Australian comic Hannah Gadsby curated a, an ex- exhibition of Picasso, gratifyingly panned by critics. <laughs> the illusionist Derrin Brown has moved in philosophy, into philosophy. Nish Kumar is a politics podcast. Rick, Ricky Gervais has smugly installed himself as a partisan of enlightenment and reason. None of these figures have any claim to expertise other than their fame. God, it does sound angry when you read it out like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. must have been cross. Like all the letters to put points of view, they all sound cross when you read <laughs> Wednesday, like that. Wednesday morning. And another thing. Uh, what do you think of this, uh, uh, India? Is James right that people should have expertise? Or are, is there a danger of sort of gatekeeping by, by the clever people? Well, I think James is right in that it's always good if people have expertise. I also think that politics in particular is incredibly boring and is populated by incredibly boring people or people who come across as very boring in their public television persona, even though they may have expert knowledge of the thing that they're talking about. So you can't you can't blame people or TV channels for booking people who are a bit lively, you know, which I think is how the brand thing started. The thing I find really sinister about the Russell Brand thing is that clearly he was aware that stuff was going on in the background and that people were asking questions. And then he completely sort of rebranded himself first as a political pundit and then as some sort of guru, as far as I can see, or cult leader. Anyway, you can't blame people for wanting to listen to people who are engaging, vivacious, amusing, make serious points using humour, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so I sort of think two things. I think, yes, there is a danger of gatekeeping. I mean, why shouldn't? Nish Kumar have a podcast about politics. Everybody's allowed an opinion. Everybody's yeah, James. Allowed... 
can make oh, a no. podcast. Well, I'm making so many enemies. But, you shouldn't have one because I've got one and you won't be able to download my politics podcast. That's more. That is the main reason. That's next week's column. Yeah. But I think that I personally would rather listen to people who knew their stuff. Yes. And I suppose the... the It's difficult, isn't it? Because part of the reason why you hear the same people on all the same outlets is because quite a lot of people aren't very good at broadcasting. That's true. I mean, I guess what... <laughs> As I demonstrate most mornings. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I guess what I'm really saying is not get rid of amateurs altogether, but let's not let the whole thing be overtaken by them. I was also having a bit of a go at universities, so I think, you know... Uh, are not doing a very good job of allowing people who work at universities who are actually experts on stuff to get into public life and to become broadcasters and stuff because they're all buried under work and forced to learn kind of preposterous are they, jargon. Are not even marking the exams? <laughs> well, I've got plenty of time to come on the radio. <laughs> well, uh, that's the sort of thing that's going to get me. Yes, yeah, so you'll get lots of angry letters from academics. Yeah. But I think, I don't know, I was also saying universities have this kind of responsibility to public life and people who actually know about science and who know about you know, vaccines and stuff should be being pushed out and said, you know, don't, you know, marking is the less important thing. An important thing is to go and talk to the public and educate them. Yeah, yeah. And they're being buried under bureaucracy and therefore, you know, all this stuff gets taken up by mad people who think the vaccines don't exist. Uh, I think I agree with James Marriott, says someone on the text. That's your... What's oh, your, yeah. What's your dad's name? Uh, it's not David, it's Richard, so that's actually not my dad. <laughs> uh, but wouldn't newspapers struggle to find columnists if they had to have expertise? You three might be the exception. Nicely recovered there, David. Um, yes. uh, let's move on, because I want to talk about food, uh, which is my, one of my hobbies, and uh, India's an expert in this. The government has got a target to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030, but it's abandoned mandatory food waste reporting by businesses, which makes it difficult to research how much food is actually being wasted. And this has been talked about in the House of Lords yesterday. So here is Joan Bakewell, Labour peer, Baroness Bakewell, questioning the Tory peer, Lord Harlech. If the government does not know the level of food waste, how is it going to ensure that food poverty is not increasing and edible food is not going to landfill? My Lords, I, I sense we're going over the, the same ground a little bit here and I can only reiterate what I've said already. It makes it good sense for businesses to reduce their food waste. However, the overwhelming amount of food waste in this country, 70%, comes from individual households. Therefore, therefore, it is about educating and helping individual households and consumers to buy what they need, use what they buy, and waste as little as possible. Now, I'm not an expert. That's definitely not Joan Bakewell. Uh, but anyway, it is someone in the House of Lords uh, talking about food waste. Um, you must know what to do with our food leftovers so we're not wasting food, India. Yeah, I do, but it's really difficult. You know, with the with the best will in the world, there's, at least in my house, always going to be something left in the fridge that you don't quite know what to do with and that's on the turn, even if you shop really carefully. I mean, I, I, um, I'm not anywhere near a supermarket, so I tend to buy what I need for the next couple of days and try and use it up. But even doing that, it's really hard. You know, things you, particularly if you have, particularly if you buy planning particular meals, there's always some leftover bit of something that doesn't sort of go in with anything else. I must just mention this app because my stepdaughter was telling me about it. She's a student and it's called Too Good To Go. Uh, and lots of students use it. And, um, it is an app that hooks you up with supermarkets and restaurants who bag up uh, the food that they would otherwise throw away and sell to you for, I don't oh, know. Oh, that's good. 30, yeah, 30 quid's worth of food you can buy for like a fiver, but you don't necessarily know what's in the bag. So you slightly have to play ready, steady, cook when you get it home. But it's that's a really good fun. way of that food, you know, not going to landfill or not just being chucked. It's so wasteful, I can't bear oh, it. There's nothing, and I did it the way, there's nothing I like more than making a massive bolognese and putting some of it in the freezer. Yeah, uh, yeah. James, um, your short thoughts on food waste. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, does it count if you never actually get the food, the old food into the bin, it just stays in the fridge for weeks and weeks and weeks? Is it actually waste? I suppose eventually it is, but I personally, you know, the fridge yeah. holds a lot of my rotting food, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, there we are. Uh, right, so we've done talking about bringing food back from the dead. What about bringing back your loved ones? Uh, reanimating the dead with computers isn't new. You've seen Carrie Fisher in Star Wars and Tupac on stage, sort of, with Snoop Dogg all the way back in 2012. But 
The development of AI means it could become a possibility not just for films, but for ordinary people too. Dr. Deborah Bassett advises tech companies on their treatment of the dead, is the author of the creation of an inheritance of digital afterlives. And Deborah, you can explain what digital necromancy really is. Well, if you think about it, it's been going on for quite a few years. It's a conjuring up of the dead. So it is anything that, uh, any technology uh, that uses um, the dead brings them back to life in some ways. Uh, and my research has been looking after the service providers that do this. So it looks at um, service providers that that offer the facility of bringing the, back, the dead back to life or offering the facility of bringing you back to life after you die. So it's conjuring up of the dead. Ouija boards were probably the first. <laughs> so when we say conjuring, is it is it reanimating what videos, holograms, voice messages? How how does it actually work beyond just you know the advice? Just take lots of photos and videos while people are alive, and you can look at them later. Well, it is, it's exactly that. It is reanimating. So in some ways, you can get somebody that has uh, sat. And they are intentional digital creators, as I call them. So they have sat with multi cameras in uh, studios and they have purposefully created media to be used um, after they die. Um, and then uh, there are people that are accidental, um, what I call digital zombies. Would you want to do this, James? Do you feel like the sound of this? Uh, it sounds creepy to me. <laughs> I'm not in favour of any form of necromancy. So you would want a uh, do not reanimate order, which apparently is a bit like a do not resuscitate order. Oh, yeah, so don't reanimate would, me. Would, yeah. I, what, I can't believe many people would want to. What, would you want to be reanimated, India? No, I'm really horrified by this idea, actually. I mean, I can see how, you know, I can see how, of course, if you're mourning loved ones, it would be tempting. But I think... After a certain point, oh, I don't know, no, I don't care to think about it. I do not care for it. No, thank you. <laughs> Would you do it, Deborah? I know this is the world you work in, but the, the closer you get to it, are you are you planning, are you filming yourself now so you can be reanimated? No. No, I want people, <laughs> after I die, I want people to remember how I was in life, not, not yeah. how I was in death. That's why I came up with the digital do not reanimate. Yeah. I wrote a yeah. code of conduct for this industry, having studied it for six years and done my PhD in it. So I wrote a, co a code of conduct that I'm hoping these companies um, will adopt. And it basically tries to um, encourage tech companies uh, to think about how these are inherited afterwards. So my feeling here is just because you can doesn't mean you should. However, mm. it can be done sensitively so that when it is inherited, um, when these memories and messages are inherited, as long as they have been done sensitively, with sensitivity at their core, they can bring some comfort to those left behind. It's ghosts, though, isn't it? It's really digital ghosts. It's living with the... I the, know, but I mean, imagine if the technology improves, if it's not a hologram, you have like a robot walking around the house with your dead husband's oh. face on it. It'd be very <laughs> peculiar. Very odd. Uh, anyway, uh, it's fascinating, um, if slightly alarming. Deborah, thank you for that. Dr. Deborah Bassett, uh, advises tech companies on the treatment of the dead and is the author of The Creation Inheritance of Digital Afterlives. James Marriott and Indian Night, there you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times each and every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's the leaders of the opposition who never quite made it to the top job. 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Leader of the pack. Memories. Uh, the best montage uh, for the best radio feature. Where we took a look at every person who'd been lead of the opposition and not made it to number 10. They're good, these, aren't they? Every week uh, last year, we were joined by Nigel Fletcher, who's from the Centre for Opposition Studies, came on the show and we went through a different leader of the opposition who never made it to number 10, one by one, every week, telling us about their life and uh, political career. And because everyone's got a political book out right about now, uh, Nigel Fletcher has turned it into a book. And here it is, The Not Quite Prime Ministers, Leaders of the Opposition, opposition 1783 to 2020. Uh, with a foreword by someone called Matt Chorley, which seems um, unlikely. Uh, But bringing together all of the failed opposition uh, leaders, and I'm delighted that Nigel joins me now. Hi, Nigel. Morning, Matt. I can't tell you how much I've missed that montage. (laughs) That was the extra special long one as well, which we had to to cut back after uh, the first couple of weeks of doing the feature because it took up uh, much too long. (laughs) So um, remind us how this was was born. We'd done the prime ministers, uh, a different prime minister every week the year before. But actually, you know, history is written by the victors. And this was a way of telling the stories of those who failed or actually just as youthful... For instance, if Keir Starmer is wondering about the pitfalls, uh, the risks of not making it to number 10, the, the people who didn't quite make it might be less well known, but it doesn't mean their stories aren't aren't worth telling. Yes, and in, in so many ways, this, this book is entirely your fault, Matt. Um, because, I mean, my, my obsession with opposition is quite long-standing. Um, and, but when you invited me on the show to do the, the, the sort of rundown of, of leaders, you, you gave a golden rule, which was that we couldn't repeat anyone that Andrew Jimson had done the previous year. So we had to do the losers. Um, and that really gave the whole thing sort of a whole new dimension because... You know, I've I've studied sort of periods of opposition, but you, you do sort of find yourself kind of looking with quite a lot of interest at sort of, you know, Harold Wilson and um, David Cameron and, you know, all of the, the leaders who Blair, obviously, who became prime minister and looking at their period in opposition. But when you rule all of them out and just look at those who didn't make it, you get a whole new perspective on it. And as you say, it's the lessons that you can draw from those who didn't quite make it. And I think the um, one of the biggest lessons is that, you know, it, there's so much luck in politics, you know, the the sort of fickle finger of fate or, or whatever you want to call it, um, that we like to think that it's all about sort of how good you are, how good your policies are, whether you sort of connect with the electorate. But so many times it's actually just about the kind of sheer bloody minded uh, kind of uh, sense of humor that fate has for people, you know, and and the number of people who've just been ruled out by um, by either a personal issue, by their health, 
um, by dying in a number of cases, um, or just the fact that you know it just wasn't their time. Um, and in another time, they might have been a really good leader. So I think that's the lesson: is that when we look at these people as as failures, we had a big debate actually with the publishers whether to make the subtitle "Failed Leaders of the Opposition." And in the end, we decided um, that that was a bit unfair. It was a bit cruel. Because really. some, sometimes failures. Sometimes, yeah, di dying will really hamper a political uh, a political <laughs> career. So let's go back to the beginning then, 1783. Uh, and it starts with uh, the Whig leader, Charles James Fox. Why start there? Because even, even trying to get a handle on who was and wasn't a leader of the opposition mm. is quite hard in those early days. So why start there and with him? Well, the reason for starting with him is because just like with the prime ministers, it's quite difficult to sort of find who was the very first one. And with the prime ministers, everyone says that the first one... Um, was Robert Walpole. And that's generally because he emerged as the biggest figure in government. He became sort of the king's first minister. And therefore, you sort of, uh, he was accused of being prime minister as a bit of an insult that, you know, he was assuming that he was the preeminent. Um, but he was a big figure and he was in office for a long time. And so that happened sort of earlier in the 18th century. Um, and the same really happened with opposition. There were lots of people who were the opposition, who were opposing uh, the government, including to Walpole. There's books being written about, um, you know, how opposition coalesced in opposition to Walpole. But you didn't really have this one single figure that you could say that person is not only the head of the opposition, but also the person who is the uh, de facto candidate to be prime minister um, from the other side. So the reason we're starting with Fox is he was that big figure. Um, he was in opposition for 22 years from um, 1783 onwards. But he was also somebody who really could have been prime minister. Um, and he probably thought he was going to be because he was um, the leader when uh, you had the uh, the crisis with George III's illness, um, which was dramatised in The Madness of King George, the Alan Bennett film. Um, and had that happened at the time, had the, the king um, sort of been removed and the prince regent sort of taken office then, it's very likely Fox would have then entered government and been his prime minister because the king had a, uh, and, and the prince regent would have had a big say over who was prime minister. Um, but that didn't happen. And so by the time um, George III uh, was replaced by the Prince Regent, um, Fox um, was dead. So, you know, he wasn't in, around to, to do that. Yeah, but he yeah. spent 22 years in opposition. He's such a huge figure, commanding presence in the Commons. So really, I think he is the kind of Walpole figure on the other side, that he was the one who coalesced as that as that big figure. It's really interesting that. And it, you know that someone's got... Uh, um, um, longevity in politics when you know people people would define about whether or not they were followers of fox mm. even even after he'd sort of he'd sort of stepped back from from politics um let's jump ahead a little bit because we need to talk about george tierney not <laughs> not least because as a result of this is the most meta conversation ever as a result of us doing the feature which has now become your book it's also become a chapter in my book which is <laughs> the the jewel so george yes. tierney was leader of the opposition or oh, he's speaking from the opposition uh, yeah. benches, uh, when he had a row with Pitt the Younger, who was Prime Minister. Yes, and I mean, if you research this, you probably know more about the, the, the duel than I do, but there's some great cartoons I'm sure you've seen as well from um, people at the time. Um, this was a, a big deal. I mean, the Prime Minister um, going and, uh, and having a duel on Putney Heath. Um, but people forget who the person was that he was having that duel with. Um, and this is George Tierney. Um, and he was not leader of the opposition at the time, um, although he was a, an opposition figure. Uh, this was 20 years, really, before he became that, that sort of leader. But um, but he was um, speaking in, in Parliament about um, uh, a defence issue. Britain was at war with France for one of the many times that happens. Uh, the, the Entente Cordiale that we've currently got going on wasn't <laughs> always the, the case. Um, and so, you know, you had... Um, a highly charged sort of debate and basically Pitt, the Prime Minister, accused him of a lack of patriotism. Um, and like with a lot of things in this book, you know, we can relate to a lot of this. You can imagine those kind of debates in Parliament where someone raises some questions about military strategy and the Prime Minister sort of says, oh, well, you know, why do you hate Britain? Um, that kind of thing. So this is what, what happened. He accused him of, of a want of patriotism is the way it's been described. Yeah. Um, and, and Cherney sort of, you know, wasn't having that and sort of asked him to retract. He didn't. Um, and so he called him out and sort of said, you know, I want a duel. So, um, you know, people on both sides were saying, you know, guys, this is really not a great idea um, and tried to dissuade them. Um, but, yeah, they met um, in on Putney Heath um, for the duel. Um, and what I haven't quite got to the bottom of, and you might be able to help me on this, but um, is, you know, I don't really know much about the, the rules of dueling, um, but they both missed and they're 12 paces apart. So either... 
um they're both you know very poor shots um or they were doing it deliberately and this was just a kind of you know they they have to shoot the the gun to make it sort of a thing but they 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 shot sort of i think two rounds at each other um the second one um pit fired into the air so he was deliberately trying not not to hit him but i don't know about journey whether he was actually trying to kill him um but well, yeah lots it's, of the, it's lots of the lots of the cartoons of the time made much of the fact that it um it's basically fair to say that, that Tierney was was a large he was man. stout yeah. And as a result, was it possibly a, a broader target yes. in the way that Pitt the younger in the way that Pitt, yeah. So luckily, that's not happened again. I think the king even wrote to to Pitt and said that better not happen again, and it didn't. Yes. But let's move in then to the the nineteenth century. This idea yeah. of a leader of the opposition becoming a sort of adornment of the of the constitution, if you like. Um, uh, let's start with Spencer Cavendish. Why have you, why have you picked him out? <laughs> Well, I mean, blatantly, the reason I've picked um, him is that uh, I love his nickname. He's the, he was the Marquess of Hartington when he was the uh, leader of the opposition. So he was in the Commons um, and his nickname was Hearty Tarty, um, which I love. Um, and I, I mentioned that on, on the show last year that I just like that nickname. Um, I hadn't quite got to the bottom then of, of, of why it was. And the reason he was given this nickname is, again, a bit like, like Fox. He had a colourful um, private life and he had a long running... Um, a relationship with a sort of high society courtesan um whose name whose nickname was skittles um and there's this this great story which i really want to be true it's got all the hallmarks of being apocryphal but it it said that he went on a a visit um somewhere and um the the mayor of the town he was visiting had put a visit to a bowling alley on the itinerary um, and he sort of went to this uh, this bowling alley and sort of questioned, sort of like, you know, why are you showing me this? And they said, well, the Prince of Wales, future um, Edward VII, who was a friend of his, um, the Prince of Wales, um, sir, has, has told us you're a great fan of Skittles, um, which is a, a, a great practical joke, <laughs> and I'd like it to be true. Um, but he's got this lovely name. And um, and also he's got a, um, a connection to Eastbourne. I put in the book that um, there was a... Um, this gay pub in uh, Eastbourne that I used to go to called the Hartington. Uh, and it turns out that he's, he is named after him. So I, that's quite a nice personal um, link. Um, where as I said in the book, you know, in the late 90s, um, I, I, I used to go there occasionally and may have been either hearty or tarty. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the... I have to say, you know, um, fair fair disclosure. Um, the the book is full of these kind of um, silly anecdotes that um, I think are sort of um, just as important as the serious history. Um, but um, but the reason he's the serious reason he's in there is because basically he he shouldn't have qualified for the book because he uh, effectively led the uh, the Liberal Party in the House of Commons to an election won the election and was then asked by the Queen to form a government. So you think, well, you know, why wasn't he prime minister? Well, the reason he wasn't prime minister was because Gladstone just sort of stuck his oar in and decided he wanted to be prime minister again. Um, he'd sort of stood back during that parliament, um, didn't do all the hard work of being leader of the opposition because he wanted to go and just, uh, you know, write tracts about uh, theology uh, for five years. Um, so Gladstone's gone off, you know, to, to do that. And then when they win the election, uh, you know, he comes back for the for the campaign. I think there's shades of Boris Johnson in this somehow. I, I, there's, there's something about him that sort of, you know, he comes back into the campaign and decides to be a big figure in the campaign. And then you sort of, you know, get to 1880, the election, and the Queen asks Hartington, who is the leader of the party in the Commons, to form a government. Um, and, and Gladstone basically says he won't serve under him. And they can't have the government without Gladstone in it. So effectively, they have to say, well, you're going to have to ask Gladstone, I'm afraid. And the Queen, the Queen Victoria wasn't very happy about that. She famously, um, famously did not. Absolutely uh, loathed him. Yeah, yeah. Did not get on with him. Did not get on with him. OK, let's jump ahead because we've got there's so many to get through. Jump ahead to yeah. the 20th century. Um, and some of those that sort of get slightly overlooked. Let's talk about, in fact, let's talk about um, Hugh Gateskill, uh, yes. who was the leader of the opposition, uh, 1955 to 63. Uh, and uh, and then died. And actually, you know, he was a Labour leader on the cusp of power uh, mm. who then died, uh, and it was Howard Wilson who replaced him who went on to become Prime Minister. The parallels with uh, the early 90s of the death of John Smith and the rise of Tony Blair are are, are so uh, stark. Let's just have a... Because we're into the 20th century, so we've got the... We've got some audio. Uh, this is Hugh Gateskill in 1960 speaking at the Labour Party conference as he faced down challenges from the left of his party. Let me repeat what Manny Shinwell said. The place to uh, decide, the place to decide the leadership of this party is not here, but in the Parliamentary Labour Party. And I would not wish for one day to remain a leader who had lost the confidence of his colleagues in Parliament. 
just explain the significance of Hugh Gates because it, it was risk of going on about it. There is a chapter about him in my book as well, and it is extraordinary <laughs> how uh, significant really he was in mid twentieth century politics and was on the cusp of becoming Prime Minister if the polls were to be believed, and it sort of just disappeared out yeah. of our sort of political reference points. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, I think I, I vaguely knew the name when I first started studying politics, and it wasn't really until I sort of got sort of properly into into studying it that I realised quite how significant he was, um, because you know he was he was leader for a you know for a long time. He was there for eight years, um, and you know he it was that one year short of the election um, that that he he died. Um, so during that period of opposition you've really got sort of you know the full sort of spectrum of you know he had a, a, a you know a very poor election result in 59 um he um mounted the, the the policy review to try and move the party into uh you know into a new direction um there was a huge debate in the labor party at the time over sort of what what being a democratic socialist meant in the modern age and all of that sort of stuff so he oversaw all of that um and also you had this um this ongoing uh d division between the the gates Galites and and the bevanites in the labor party so all of that he was at the center of all of those really important yeah. debates in the mid-20th century labor party um and as we heard there you know there were these two famous conference speeches that he he made um you know one on his um his commitments um to, to moving the party away from um unilateral um you know disarmament um and you know and and also he he made a very um, important speech about the party's position on on Europe. So a number of, of issues where he he was sort of really taking on his party and um, and and on clause four. You know he tried to he tried to um, review clause four uh, decades before Blair successfully yeah, yeah, did exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He failed to do it. So you know, and I think if you look at and a lot of my students, I find um, sort of get onto this when they talk about modernization of the Labour Party. Uh, a lot of them like to do this comparison and look at sort of Gates School as the forerunner for for Blair. And there's a lot in that. But I think you have to say that Gates School was probably sort of the forerunner. We we'll, might get onto in a bit of of Neil Kinnock, um, in the the way that he took on the party, you know, and, and did all that all that hard work. And I suppose um, actually that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? If, if one of the measures of being a successful leader of the opposition is did you become prime minister, which obviously everyone in your book fell on that. But did you get your party closer to power than it was yeah, before? You know, exactly. on, on both you know sides, Labour and Conservative. It's some sometimes there's a sort of job of work to be done there. Um, in fact, I think we have we've got a little clip of Neil Kinnock actually when he told me when he uh, why he thought the public ultimately voted for John Major over him. I was a marmalade figure. He was a marmalade figure. Uh, you could go for a pint with him. You could bear living next door to him. Whereas with Mrs Thatcher, if you were living next door and the kids were playing football in the street and the ball went into her garden. They'd never knock the door to ask for it back. <laughs> I just love that story. I thought the mar yeah. Marmite versus Marmalade is just a really good way of summing up politics. Uh, Nigel, we've now reached the 21st uh, century, uh, where, you know, actually both the Conservatives and the Labour Party have had quite a lot of uh, leaders of the opposition. An embarrassment of riches, isn't it? Yes. Um, I don't know what that tells us about the state of our politics. Uh, Ed, let's turn our to Ed Miliband. Uh, who, uh, you know, when you need to prove that you are ready for the top job of being Prime Minister, there's a problem you have to keep on saying it. Am I tough enough? H tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Um, <laughs> but actually, unlike quite a lot of the leaders of the opposition, he's still around, he could well be in mm. the the cabinet uh, in the event of a, of a Labour government. Yes, and that's another lesson that I draw from from the book and the lives of all of these uh, these so called failed leaders, um, is that actually a lot of them um, go on to do um, significant things later on in their careers or had have done significant things in their careers before they take on the mantle of of leading the opposition. So you have you know lots of of the Victorian ones, um, you know they'd been in high office, they'd been in the great offices of state, and then at some point after an election, um, you know where the prime minister sort of goes off and they take over the leadership for a bit. Uh, having been a senior figure. Um, but there's other people who, um, you know, being leader is not the end of their career. William Hague is a very good example um, of someone who obviously then went on to be foreign secretary and a, a fairly well-respected uh, senior minister uh, after his very unsuccessful time as, as leader of the opposition. Um, but um, the, yeah, there, Ed Miliband is another interesting one. If he goes on to be a cabinet minister again, that will that will be very similar to a lot of the leaders that we've we've seen in the book. It's interesting, those people who, uh, being leader of the opposition, may, ends up being a sort of blip in their careers. Yeah. Uh, before, you know, William Hague's another ex example of, of someone like that, probably. 
Um, whereas others, it ends up being the the height of their career. For mm. instance, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, who uh, regular listeners to the show will know, uh, ended up in at least according to our listeners, being voted the best prime minister we never had. Uh, we ran a Twitter poll. We had a bit of fun on a bank holiday Monday. We ran a poll, the best prime minister we never had. Uh, it ended up being a contest between uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Charles Kennedy. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn ended up winning, and we thought it was just a bit of fun. And then uh, he recorded this. I'm not sure this Twitter poll gave the result that a lot of our media pundits really expected, or possibly even the one that they wanted. <laughs> he recorded a victory speech, uh, slightly weirdly, in a bush. Uh, what does the story of Jeremy Corbyn tell us about... What happens to some leaders of the opposition? And where does he sort of fit into the great pantheon? Well, he's a very interesting character. Um, and, you know, surprisingly, because he he was in office for quite a long time, um, for one thing, you know, we've got quite a lot to look at. And having two general elections is also quite unusual. Um, you know, prior to him, and Kinnock was the only other one to have have, have led his party at two elections and, and survived to, to fight the second one. Um, and in Corbyn's case, you know, he had sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. On the first one in 2017, he, he massively exceeded expectations. Um, and in 2019, led his party to the worst defeat since 1935. So, you know, you've got both ends of the spectrum in terms of um, expectation management there. Um, but he's also fascinating for the sense that he tells us something about what we expect from leaders of the opposition. So, um, there are things like the the sort of Privy Council. There's the first row of Corbyn's time as leader um, was whether he was going to go to Buckingham Palace and kneel before the Queen to become a Privy Councillor. And, you know, he was asked in an interview by Laura Kunzberg at the, the, the sort of start of his leadership, are you going to do that? And he didn't know. And he's, he sort of, you know, equivocated about it. It was the first scandal. And then you have the press saying, oh, you know, he's disloyal and all this sort yeah. of thing. But it's this unconventional sort of aspect of someone who's so anti-establishment, someone who is an out-and-out -out sort of you know, anti-establishment Republican. He's a left-winger. Um, but we have had leaders like that before. You know, it's quite surprising if you go back to um, even into the, the 18th century. Um, you've got leaders there who, you know, were, were going and speaking at, at protest rallies um, against sort of, you know, um, rather hardline government measures. Uh, you've got um, people who were sort of speaking outside the House of Commons to, to sort of crowds of people and going and speaking on, on platforms with radical leaders um uh you know and uh, fox and others were were criticized for it so it goes back a long way and then you have um people like um george lansbury in the 1930s who was you know a very left-wing uh, labor leader he'd been a a minor cabinet minister in in the second labor government um but when he led the party you know he he ended up having to resign over his pacifism uh, which made way for yeah. for uh, atley but lansbury you know he's a was a very left wing figure and a very similar to corbyn in many ways um completely unsuited really to being a leader and never expected to be again similar to corbyn so it, we we think that corbyn was such an unexpected and sort of uh, unprecedented leader um but there really are parallels in in some <laughs> of these stories there are always parallels unprecedented yeah. should be banned in politics because <laughs> almost everything has happened almost identically uh, previously <laughs> now obviously there's a reason why the book stops in 2020 because we don't yet know if Keir Starmer would make it into the book because if he becomes Prime Minister he'd then be uh, disqualified and you know mm. from what you've been saying the, the fact that that's even an open question now 2015 20 points ahead in the polls shows that you know he's done a lot of that work as leader of the opposition let's look into the future uh, then what does Keir Starmer need to do in the next year and then what does if he does win and he becomes prime minister and disqualifies himself from your book what does the next conservative leader of the opposition contest look like mm. Well, I think, I mean, Starmer, I think, you know, has, has got this dilemma you always have as as leader of the opposition between um, sort of just attacking the government constantly and, and saying everything they do is terrible and also being responsible. And I think in recent months, he's he started sort of having that problem where, you know, he's being asked and his um, shadow cabinet are being asked in interviews questions as though they're already the cabinet. You know, they're being asked, you know, would you um, would you agree to this pay deal? Would you, you know, all of those technical sort of quite small details, they're having to sort of, you know, go, be, be asked about them. And that's always a danger when you become sort of held to account as the opposition in that way. Um, but for the for the next leaders of the opposition, let's assume that Labour win the next election and the Conservatives go into opposition. The thing I would say to them is they have to be prepared for what William Hay uh, describes as the uh, the night shift. Um, you know, everyone sort of wants to be leader of their party if they're an MP, frankly. And um, but 
you know, the, their time, you know, may may come at the worst possible time for the party. Um, you know, William Hague's been been asked, you know, do you regret standing for leader at that time? Would it not have been better to wait? Well, he said, you know, firstly, you know, you can't just postpone it and say, oh, well, I'll be leader when I'm ready. You have to take the opportunity when it comes. Um, and also he said that he doesn't think anyone else would have been able to hold the party together at that time. And someone had to do it. It's a phrase that Kinnock's used as well. Yeah. You know, some someone had to do it at that time. So I think that, you know, there will be a, maybe a clamoring of people who want to be leader of the opposition um, after an election defeat. But I think they should ask themselves, are they prepared, frankly? <laughs> are they prepared to be in this book? You know, are they are they prepared to spend sort of five years of their life or more, uh, in some cases, um, knocking their head against a brick wall only to actually make very little progress and not prime minister at the end of it yeah well it's, it'll be at. fascinating to see how that how that unfolds uh after the after the election and it, it, you know and if Keir Starmer doesn't become prime minister does he get the opportunity like uh uh Corbyn and Kinnock to to carry on or is he turfed out like all the Tory Tory leaders um uh, in the certainly in the 21st century as well uh Nigel Listen, it's fascinating. I love the book. I was very pleased to be asked, asked to write the forward for it. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, I look forward to more features from Times Radio being spun off into uh, a book empire. So, Nigel Fletcher, thanks uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Uh, and, uh, yeah, The Not Quite Prime Ministers, Leaders of the Opposition, 1783 to 2020 by Nigel Fletcher, is out now. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm going to spend the weekend packing my bags uh, for what's going to be uh, quite annoying tour of Britain, doing uh, the Lib Dem Party Conference in Bournemouth, the uh, Tory Party Conference in Manchester, the Labour Party Conference in Liverpool. And, yes, because somebody emailed in about it, we'll be covering the SNP Conference as well uh, in the interest of fairness or that. Uh, but for now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.